Welcome to another episode of Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation. We're your hosts, Melanie Sona. And Erin Liedka. And today we are pleased to be joined with Ms. Abrey Connor. So Abrey Connor is the director of the Center of Environmental and Climate Justice at the National Association for Advancement of Colored People, overseeing the strategy and collaboration across the association to dismantle environmental racism. She's also a faculty member at the University of California, Davis in Environmental Policy and Management Program. Abre served as the Directing Attorney of Health and Law Foundation of Silicon Valley, where she led the litigation, direct legal service work, and advocacy regarding health equity and the social determinants of health that impact historically excluded communities across the Silicon Valley. Prior to joining the Law Foundation, Abre was a staff attorney with the ACLU Foundation of Northern California, where she advocated for the civil rights and liberties of Central Valley and Northern California residents, including an emphasis on issues that impact people of color in rural communities such as environmental justice. So with that introduction, we are very pleased and excited to learn from you today, Abre. You have an extensive background in policy advocacy as you're an attorney, and um, you're going to be a perfect addition to this political determinants of health season. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here with you all. Awesome. So um, we, you know, just heard a lot of, a bit of, you know, some of the really impressive accomplishments and things that you've uh, done in your career, but we're hoping that you could give us a little bit of background about some of your, like your, just briefly your journey to environmental justice and health policy advocacy and how you kind of ended up working in this field. Yeah. Well, I grew up in the South originally in, in Florida and uh, a more rural uh, community um, in the central part of Florida. And I realized that you know, I had a lot of breathing problems. I had an abuterol pump. Um, there were a number of plants, which I later found out were phosphate plants all around um, areas where it was predominantly uh, people of color and people from other historically excluded communities in my city and, and across the county. And um, what I recognized later on, particularly understanding that I wanted to do civil rights issues, uh, was that there was an intersection between um, the, the air that I was breathing, um, the environment that I was living in, and civil rights issues, and that we really couldn't have a conversation around civil rights without actually having a conversation about the environment, the social determinants of health, or the uh, ability for people to eat, live, pray and play within their communities. And so uh, once I recognized that there was this intersection, um, I knew that I wanted to be a part of the environmental justice, the environmental yeah. and climate justice later movement. And so that's really how I got my start was really just actually being a product of a community where um, I didn't actually breathe healthy air mm -hmm. and I had a number of breathing problems just because of the decisions that other people made who were in power and they didn't um, educate us or let us know that their decisions were actually impacting our future. Yeah, that's so powerful, Abre. And I really love that you're able to um, pull directly from your personal experiences and how that's been able to inform the trajectory of your career, which is very influential and um, something that Aaron and I are starting to gain a lot more of appreciation for that 
you know, having the power of information and knowing like what's in your environment and how it's impacting you um, can be the impetus, you know, for people in those communities to do something about it. So, I mean, you're like a literal like example of, you know, what we've been talking about on this podcast and um, why we think it's so important and critical to um, dispense this sort of information on this sort of platform for people to, to know about it. So thank you so much for pulling that in. And you kind of like hinted at the question we're going to ask you at the end. But um, so, but yes, that, that was very, that was awesome. So thank you for that. Um, so, you know, as you are the environmental justice director of the NAACP, could you just tell us a little bit about what are your primary responsibilities um, within this sector of the organization? Yeah. Well, the way that uh, the NAACP operates is we really look at a holistic approach for our advocacy and the work that we're doing within communities. Uh, The NAACP has branches and state conferences all across the country. And how I look at my work, especially in environmental and climate justice uh, kind of space, really kind of stems from Uh, the teachings and the learnings that I gained really early on in my career um, from working in an organization uh, with founders and folks who were thinking about this, like Luke Cole, which is that you cannot actually do environmental justice work um, without thinking about it from an inherently local kind of angle. And so at the NAACP, uh, I work really closely with our branches, our state conferences, to hear from them kind of what are the issues that they are facing, um, what are some of the environmental and climate injustices that they are facing, and figuring out how we can work with them to solve those issues, but also looking at the trends <laughs> that I'm seeing across the country and figuring out what are the systemic ways that we can try to address those issues. So this can vary from, for example, water infrastructure. I did a lot of work in Jackson, but that Jackson is a microcosm of really what we're seeing in Black communities all across the country as it relates to water issues, as it relates to state controlling the money and the power and not actually allowing for it to trickle down into the communities. And so what I do is look at how do we come up with a strategic approach to these issues that we know are impacting people all across the country and come up with a way that we can help communities, but also replicate the solutions that we're building out so that we can actually have something to build on uh, in the future. And we also look at mobilization, policy advocacy, litigation, organizing, um, making sure that there's public education. And so we utilize all of those tools and then really build out a strategy that incorporates everybody's skill set so that we can have the best solution. That's awesome. I, I really like this idea of having the individual impact. You guys can work in these communities at a local level because of all these different chapters and divisions, but then also being able to aggregate that information up and saying, what can we do on the nationwide? That's that's just, it's, it's exactly how you kind of implement change in both, both directions. And um, something that I think as that's become very clear, especially as we go through this season is like, you know, this um, rights and advocacy component and giving people the skills to advocate for themselves 
in training them how, you know, people know what they need. People know what their communities and neighborhoods need, especially when it comes to environmental stuff. But there's, you know, people have to interact with a legal system that doesn't necessarily, isn't conducive to um, their personal experiences inherently. So that's awesome that you all are doing um, work on both sides of that. Uh, Something that I'm interested in hearing more about is, Um, The NAACP has a very rich history of advocating for civil rights um, and equity, but the journey of civil rights hasn't always incorporated environmental justice, um, and that environmental justice hasn't always been a part of the picture. So what motivated the NAACP or, you know, a a general move to include um, environmental environmental justice and center environmental justice in uh, their efforts? Yeah. Well, you know, that's a really important question as well, because to your point, you know, um, even when we look at the idea of environmental justice or climate justice, right, it birthed from the recognition that there were people in the mainstream green space who were having conversations around environmental issues and they weren't including the communities that were most impacted. And then you had folks in the civil rights space who understood that they were in that there were injustices that were happening within historically excluded communities, within black communities, within brown communities, and that you know we were trying to figure out within the civil rights space, folks were trying to figure out like, okay, what are all the reasons as to why this is happening? And I would say that. Black communities, Indigenous communities, other historically excluded communities have recognized for a long time that the environment that they lived in uh, was directly a part of the conversation. Uh, But it was about figuring out how do we incorporate that conversation into the civil rights space. And so we actually had folks, our leaders, like Ben Chavis, who were actually in the room, who actually helped to coin the term of environmental racism, because there was a recognition within the NAACP from the beginning of the conversation of how do we intersect the work that's already happening, the work that we're being excluded from, and the work that needs to move forward in a way that ensures that we're amplifying what's already happening on the ground. And so the NAACP has been in the room from the beginning. Uh, and now it's really interesting because we're at a time in this country and in the world where there's finally an acknowledgement of the work that has been happening yeah. for decades and decades. Uh, and the NAACP has continued to ensure that you know we're lifting up what we're hearing uh, from the communities. And when we made the shift to ensure that this was a center of innovation at the NAACP, it really crystallized what we have been doing for a very long time, which is that this is a priority for the association, for us to recognize that environmental and climate justice is a civil rights issue. And it is an issue that's not going to go anywhere as it relates to Black people, unless we have our people at the table amplifying the issues that have been talked about for forever, and that there's actual solutions that are coming from the community level. Right. And and that's so critical. um, And 
the NAACP can step in as kind of like that, um, you know, force to kind of combine what's going on in the public space with what's going on in the civil rights space. What I don't know, the first thing I'm thinking of is like, for instance, like the women's rights movement or feminism movement, how like, I mean, that started off as kind of like a white woman um, pop culture thing and then didn't incorporate, you know, the needs of black women and the aspect of civil rights. And it wasn't until, you know, we had some force that was able to join the two that we could actually um, confront these issues that are often ignored and overlooked in um, black and brown communities. So, um, yeah, NAACP is a key um, key force in, in being able to bridge those two uh, issues and uh, confronting them. And um, I'm, I'm curious to know, we had... Uh, Dr. Robert Bullard on a few weeks ago, um, who, who's been dubbed as like the father of environmental justice. So he's done a lot of work as well in proving that, um, you know, environmental injustice exists and it's disproportionately impacting black and brown communities. And um, surprisingly, he, despite all of the evidence he was able to um, incur, he couldn't in the beginning convince people that this was a real issue. And that was very alarming to me. And I'm curious to know if, you know, NAACP as a powerful entity it is, have you seen that there's been any sort of resistance in um, trying to advocate for, uh, uh, for environmental justice for black and brown communities, like on the policy front or even uh, pushing it out in the media that, you know, black and brown communities are disproportionately impacted by, by this. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting that you raise that because I definitely recognize um that this is um a an uphill but important fight for us to all be a part of. When you look at um the study that was done back in the 1980s by uh, the UCC Church Toxic Waste and Race and the fact that you had the da- the data at that point that showed that you had you know toxic waste incinerators that were disproportionately in black communities and then in in uh, brown communities as well in that 20 years later they do the exact same study toxic waste and race at 20 and it's it got worse in some instances um you know i think that going in with that kind of understanding uh you know that there are going to be people who don't understand or don't want to understand, or it is not in their best political will um, to understand or to publicly state that environmental and climate justice issues are quite frankly issues that we all need to be uh, concerned about. And so with that being said, you know, of course we receive pushback. Um, You know, there are times where we're talking about issues that are disproportionately impacting our communities and people are asking, um, not necessarily from our communities, but, you know, folks who have never done any work within our communities, but they're asking, why are we actually at the forefront? Why are we leading conversations around environmental and climate justice uh, issues across the country? And, you know, this is something that I think is intentional for some folks because they don't want for us to be at the table. They don't want for people to recognize that environmental and climate justice issues 
are issues that civil rights organizations need to take seriously, need to make sure that they're amplifying. Right. And so I think there, for some folks, it's a little bit of gaslighting. They don't actually want um, for us to continue to lead the charge and continue to work with coalition partners and continue to work with communities, because then it creates a level of um, credibility to this topic that mm-hmm. we're also working in community with folks who have been doing this for a long period of time. And there's a recognition from this Black organ- civil rights organization that this is a civil rights issue as well. Um, and so there's pushback, uh, but that's part of you know doing this work, right? right. Is that we're not necessarily going to always win everyone over, uh, but part of our job is to one, make sure that the folks within our communities have the resources that they need um, and that we're amplifying, you know, the folks who are not actually trying to do the right thing, which we often do. And I have no problem advocating um, <laughs> loudly uh, for yeah. especially folks in elected positions who are denying um, how they are treating folks within our communities. That's huge. I mean, just the, I think, you know, there's a lot of this idea that it's a civil rights issue and not just, oh, but what about the polar bears and what about the, like the forests and that kind of thing. Right. Like it adds a level of credibility and urgency. I think you're so right. And it holds people accountable, especially when there's an organization like the NAACP doing a lot of this and other, you know, we've talked to a few other organizations that are trying to work on this and it's like, it adds a level of accountability to elected officials or people who are making these decisions um, where they wouldn't necessarily have to respond to because maybe that community isn't organized in that way or those communities voices are not being uplifted or, um, you know, shared with, with the public so I think that that's a huge it's and this is why like this is part of why we really wanted to do this political determinants of health season is because there's so many the the power that holding people accountable and clear like the way that you talk about this issue is you know I mean that's right like if you frame it like oh this is a full rights issue that really people are like, Oh wait, but I thought we were done, which is a whole other conversation. Right. But, but like there's a level of urgency. So I, I definitely um, appreciate that that is kind of in the forefront and not only the, your awareness of that, but also I can imagine I'm just thinking about it off the top of my head. This is a very effective um, strategy and something as we're talking about policy and, you know, centering this, um, uh, environmental justice in policies specifically. I'm curious, I mean, you've had a lot of experience not only teaching about, you know, structural racism and how policies and things that can, you know, mitigate the effects of this spatial inequality that we have in the U.S. and everywhere, uh, other places, but <laughs> you are in the U.S. So what are some of the key considerations that you take into account when developing effective policies or advocating for effective policies so that these policies aren't unintentionally exacerbating existing disparities um, in these communities that tend to be historically marginalized and continually have policies that are exploiting them? No, that's such an important question because, you know, oftentimes folks who are in the policy space, um, they may or may not have 
experience actually on the ground working with communities. And I really uh, appreciate the fact that I had the opportunity to actually do community um, and movement lawyering actually within communities, because I think that is a really important component of being able to draft and work on effective policies, uh, because it doesn't help the communities on the ground if you come up with a policy that will never actually reach them in the way that is drafted um, in a capital of a state or capital of the country. Um, it, it can sound good on paper, but if it's never actually going to work like that, the implementation is really the most important uh, component. And so one of the things that um, I really look to, especially when it comes to the policy angle of the work, so I look at, for example, uh, just last year, I testified in front of um, Congress, in front of the House Committee on Homeland Security about water infrastructure issues. And right before I did that testimony, I had actually just left Jackson. So incorporated in my testimony were stories actually from folks on the ground. Mm -hmm. It wasn't necessarily just me coming up with, oh, this is what I think makes sense based on my expertise, based on my teaching, but it's also based and rooted on the stories, um, the solutions, the issues that I'm hearing about from people. And oftentimes, you know, they have the best understanding. They are really the experts in what's going to actually be helpful in their communities. Uh, I look at issues like, you know, um, solutions like Justice 40, um, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, an opportunity for historically excluded communities to finally get uh, credits and investments in their communities um, because the Biden administration has stated that this is a priority for his administration and for how um, the administration is moving forward. In practice, though, it's really important for Justice 40 and for the, the funding and for the investments to actually reach the communities um, that it is intended to actually help. And so part of the uh, part of the work is also not necessarily just getting it in place, but the follow up. What are you all seeing? You know, is this actually are, are you all actually seeing Justice 40 investments in your communities? If not, why not? OK, where are the blocks that are happening? And then making sure that we're doing the full circle with other folks in the federal space and in the state space as well. Uh, to make sure that, you know, they recognize, hey, great policy, great, you know, um, idea, but here are some things that we're actually seeing in the implementation phase uh, that can make it better. And so it's first about like actually having a good policy, but you can't stop there. You absolutely have to be a part of the implementation because there's just no way that anyone's going to write a policy um, without thinking about the implementation and expect for it to go off without any kind of problem. Right. No, that's so good, Aubrey. And I mean, what you just said is very much so in line with what we consistently hear from many of our guests when it comes to either implementing research or policy or whatever it might be. 
Um, it's like, you need to hear from the community. You can't just sit in your bubble and write these laws that look pretty on paper because we don't live in a perfect world is the reality. <laughs> so more than likely, you know, if you're not getting insight from the people on the ground and if you're not following up, like you're saying, like, how do we know that we're actually moving forward? How do we know that any of these laws that sound great are actually doing what they're intended to do? And following the money is a big part of that, too, like you said. Let's be real. Money has power here. And if it's not going to the people who need it, then, you know, you, we're just funneling. I mean, I think that's what I hear a lot. People are like, well, we have all these initiatives and we have all of these, you know, things going on for these underserved, overlooked communities, but nothing's changing. It must be them. Well, if you look at it, you know, how much is going towards administration costs and fees and, you know, all these other things that I'm not even fully aware of, you know, the amount that actually gets to the people's like peanuts at the end. So that's a big one. So thank you for highlighting that. That was really good. Um, I have a question that's kind of two in one a little bit. Um, you know, we've been talking about how, you know, to to ameliorate these disparities, um, you know, we, I think the, the greatest scale to start doing that is at the policy level. Um, but I think, you know, the history of Black people in this country and it, it, it goes so far deep. And if we were to try to understand like exactly like all of those external forces that are now influencing health disparities today, it's a lot and it's dense. Um, how do you, you know, from your expert opinion, how do we start to or where do we start looking at um, all of the, 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 his, the political injustices over time and and policies that have been put into place and maybe even taken out like redlining, but still have an impact today. Where do we start in looking at all of those political influences and rectifying them to repair the damages that, that, um, you know, all of these racially biased policies have imparted on people? Um, That's the first question. So I'll let you answer that before I ask the next next one. Yeah. Now um, (laughs) there's so many components, but quite frankly, I think that, you know, we have to at least start it at slavery um, because, and and maybe even before slavery um, as it relates to Black folks, because there's also just the land that Indigenous folks had uh, in this country and the way that that land was ripped from them is very much a part of the framing of how this country has thought about um, the rights of people uh, who actually own land or own um, their bu- property and things like that, how they've thought about that and who they feel like deserves to have protection and who they feel like doesn't deserve to have protection. That is all a part of the conversation and really the crux of the conversation when it comes to thinking about environmental and climate justice. And so I think that if we're not starting like from the beginning of how uh, people thought about um, who deserved to be protected and who did not deserve to be protected, who was here just for purposes of labor um, and, and what they could bring from a labor perspective and who was going to, who should continue to be considered the dominant voice um, then we can't have a conversation about environmental and climate justice. So we have to at least start there. Yeah, I think that's totally appropriate. Um, So a lot of learning needs to happen clearly because, yes, a lot has happened since then, but uh, still very relevant nonetheless. 
so thank you for answering that. I know it's very dense, like I said, but that is a very good starting point. Um, and my second question is, so, um, you know, what do you think? I mean, there's so many things that we can address, right? And it's going to take, you know, centuries to undo what centuries of damage has done, right? But, you know, what do you think are the most pressing environmental issues that the NAACP is currently focused on? And what steps are you all taking to address them? Yeah, we'll talk high level um, just about some of the work that we're doing. So disaster resiliency is really important. Um, we recently signed a, a MOU with FEMA um, because we recognize that Black communities and our, the folks that are in our branches and in our state conferences um, did not have access or transparency to what was happening with one of the major agencies as it relates to disaster resiliency and what was actually happening in their communities because of climate injustices, our communities are facing uh, more frequent uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, um, heat issues, like it's just hotter in general, it's hot for everyone um, this summer, but in black communities and in other communities that have been historically excluded, uh, we know that they were experiencing even more heat. Um, sea level rise, you know, in our communities is a huge issue, uh, but it's also something that folks just did not feel prepared um, for what is the inevitable uh, future that we have uh, as it relates to particularly climate injustices. And so uh, that's something that, you know, we're working very closely with FEMA and also with our state uh, conferences in our branches to make sure that there is more transparency, there's accountability, uh, that we don't necessarily continue the same cycle of, unfortunately, our communities being left out uh, of the conversation, of the resources, um, of the the outreach not necessarily being culturally um appropriate uh, when there is a a disaster that hits? And then how do we make sure that people are actually prepared on the front end? Uh, So that is a huge part. It's been a a huge part of our work for a long time. Uh, We do a lot of, and that's within kind of our sustainable communities work. So just in general, we do a lot of work as it relates to ensuring that folks have uh, the ability to have sustainability within their communities and that we're working on the infrastructure Um, in order to support that, which also leads me to our work around water infrastructure. And we're continuing uh, to do work within Jackson and uh, with Black communities across the country who have faced uh, injustices as it relates to water infrastructure. We recognize that a lot of Black communities, um, as we kind of talked about earlier, there's funding, uh, but it's really up to the state. Uh, oftentimes as to whether or not they actually receive that funding. And so sometimes it's coins, sometimes it's zero. Sometimes the funding is actually going to other communities instead of the communities that are supposed to actually be able to receive that support. And so we're continuing to offer technical assistance in Jackson, you know, legal and technical assistance since we have an open Title VI complaint still Uh, with the EPA, um, basically stating that because we believe the state of Mississippi uh, diverted or sent funds away from the city of Jackson, because the city of Jackson is a Black capital, 
in the in the state of Mississippi um, that there is discrimination in the state cannot do that as a recipient of federal funds. Um, and so there's public education. There's a number of different things that we're continuing to do to make sure that we're working with that community. Because number one, uh, as we talked about before as well, it's not about just starting the work but it's also making sure that we have a holistic approach to actually help communities. Uh, we're also doing a, a number of things around electric ve- electric vehicles and particularly Interesting. school buses. Oh, um, cool. And um, that work has consisted of making sure there's public education, um, that our communities, um, that they're not left out of the conversation when it comes to which school districts are actually getting clean school bus funding. Uh, one of the things that we recognized was that there were a number of communities uh, where there were predominantly Black school districts, and the, they weren't actually applying for the funding um, for clean school buses, or their school district wow. applied, and they didn't actually receive the funding. Um, and, oh, my gosh. So in order to, you know, make sure that there's like an equity kind of perspective to an issue where we know diesel um, disproportionately yeah. impacts um, youth and then you, it's going to have disproportionate impact on black youth specifically yeah. um, if they're going to be the subject of the folks who continue to have buses that are not clean school buses. They continue to have to have school buses that are diesel. That's going to impact, as we were talking about before, the social determinants of health, their ability, achievement that achievement gap, their ability to stay in schools, their ability um, to be able to pay attention because of the health risks that are at stake if they have to breathe in more of those contaminants and pollutants because of um, the types of buses that they are subjected to have to be a part of. Um, And so I'll stop there because I know um, I can go on and on, but those are just a few of the, the areas in addition to different uh, public comments that we're doing on topics like, you know, carbon capture and storage um, that the, that is being um, considered as a, a solution <laughs> to pollution in communities. But um, we, we offered comments about how we feel about that and another, and a number of other issues that, um, we feel are going to have a systemic and long-term impacts on Black communities. That is so great, Abre, to hear about all of the different initiatives. And this, that's like, it's so, like, this is why environmental justice involves all of these different aspects. It involves the water, it involves these school buses, it involves funding. Um, and so to have an organization that can manage at all levels, right? And obviously you all have, um, somewhat of a policy focus, but managing this at all levels and figuring out how these things can be addressed at different um, points in time is just huge. So I love that. And then I also love this idea of, you know, the follow through, the follow up, um, because I th- I think that that is, it's a really, e- I feel like, especially on the policy level, it seems like a pretty easy thing to do. Of like, oh, we did this thing. We did it. You know, we accomplished it. We've been fighting for this, you know, for so long and and now they, you know, now they're going to have to divert funding. Now they're going to have to, you know, 
Um, but to, to kind of follow up on the impacts of that and also educating the community as to that these funds are available and that these funds need to be used and they're actually intended for their school district or for their water system. Um, so I, I think that that speaks volumes to the intersectionality of the work that you all are doing. Uh, I'm, I'm interested if you, if you could illuminate a little bit about you, you all obviously work with policymakers. You're talking about, you know, holding these local and state governments accountable um, using like the court of law and stuff like that. How does that look like? Like, what does it look like when you say, Hey, we, we kind of think that the state is wrongfully diverting funds. Um, Yeah. Can you just illuminate kind of what those steps look like or what that process is? Yeah. You know, it really is, um, important. And so that's why we always have to start at the community level, because each community and how they are experiencing the issues can look different. So, you know, oftentimes um, there are some common trends, you know, as I talked about before, we want to be able to replicate and we want to be able to take what we learn and the wins to other communities, but there may be some nuances um, that are really important for us to understand. And so, For example, if you have a place where, you know, um, the fact that they have uh, an elected official at the city level um, or at the county level who is Black, and then you have a governor who is um, white and who has made comments particularly harmful against the local Black elected leadership, that's an important, um, you know, that's important context to understand like why or what's happening at the local level and and what's happening at the state level. And then you may have places where you may have someone at the state level who is not necessarily making particularly harmful or intentionally uh, neglectful kind of comments about the local elected official. It just never crossed their mind (laughs) to prioritize Mm -hmm. these communities. But the impact Right. Right. Of them just not thinking about this small rural black community or, you know, folks within this particular city, it it still can feel the same. Um, And especially if the money is still going to other places. So it's really important, one, you know, in thinking about kind of the steps, having those conversations, making sure I have a good lay of the land as it relates to the political dynamics within that state. Uh, at a local level, uh, and then how they are intersecting uh, at the federal level. And then from there, you know, we figure out how we can be most impactful, how we can be most helpful. Um, What are the steps that the local community has already done? And to your point, sometimes they haven't necessarily had that opportunity. And sometimes they're extremely organized. And they're like, actually, we've met with this person, this person, this person. Um, This is what they said to us. And then we're building on the work that's already happening. And so um, it really does start with like having an understanding of how, you know, folks at the local level have been able to engage or if there have been barriers um, that have been put up, you know, and they've reached out and no one responds. Um, And that for me personally, you know, I don't I don't want us to come in and feel like, oh, okay, well, you all should respond now because the NAACP is here. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. You all have already gotten your chance to respond. You know, the folks who you should should be held accountable to, who actually live there, 
they've already reached out. And so if that wasn't good enough for you, then we move into the next steps to make sure that we're working with them to hold you accountable. It's not like, you know, you get to start over from step one because we're involved. That was your opportunity to do the right thing. And now is your opportunity to legally or otherwise do the right thing because we're going to advocate um, with all the tools that we have within our toolkit to make sure that that happens. Yeah, no, I I really love that the powerhouse that NAACP is as a civil rights advocacy group. Um, you guys still don't come in and take over and be like, okay, we're here now. We can help, you know, advocate for you guys and speak for you guys. But no, you're very much so still putting the community at the center, which is so important. And I like this idea of surveying what has already been done what the you know relationship between the community and state is and the state and the federal government is because sometimes I think I feel like it's like a game of telephone like you know something's going on here and then you pass the message along to the next level and then that might get misconstrued and then going to the federal level it gets misconstrued further so I mean I think that sounds like a very organized way to go about it and um, just hearing you kind of describe the way in which NAACP steps in to help um, you know navigate conversations between community and all the way to the federal it it kind of appeases like all of the confusion and sometimes like the the overwhelm that I think can come with trying to to get what you want done on such a grand level so that's that's really awesome um well I I'm really loving this conversation so we're gonna unfortunately everything every good thing comes to an end so we're gonna start wrapping up so my second to last question we'll ask you is uh looking ahead if you can just tell us um what do you, what are some of the vision and goals that you have for the future of environmental justice here in the U.S. and how does the NAACP plan to achieve them? Yeah, I think it's a big one. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, on it, I, I think at a really simple level um, is that you don't necessarily have to have people like or organizations like the NAACP or any other EJ organization just you know, um, trying to advocate that this is indeed one of the most important conversations and topics of now and the future, that there's a recognition that we're going to have to actually, you know, actively work and creatively come up with solutions that will allow for us to undo all the harm that's been done for centuries and centuries, and that we're able to actually have folks who are in decision-making positions, who are willing to uh, be bold and courageous um, to make the tough calls on behalf of communities. Um, So they're ensuring that resources are actually getting to them, um, that, you know, they're not necessarily afraid of, oh, well, maybe this is going to happen. And so we're not going to like take this bold step, but we'll take this step instead. Um, My hope is that in the future, we'll get to a place that we have folks at the federal, the state and the local level who are all working collaboratively, boldly and courageously um, to ensure that the communities who have been excluded um, from the the decision-making kind of space, that they are included and also, the resources are there um, for them to be able to decide what a sustainable 
community and a sustainable future looks like for them. And how I feel like we uh, are involved in that is that we're going to continue to fight on behalf um, and with and united in communities uh, to ensure that we're amplifying what we're hearing actually from folks on the ground, um, that we're going to continue to push the narrative that I just said right here, which is what we continue to say and what I've said from the beginning, which is that we cannot continue to do the same steps that we've been doing for centuries and centuries and expect for us to actually reach environmental and climate justice. We're going to have to think outside the box. We're going to have to allow for new people to be in decision-making spaces. We're going to have to allow for the folks who are the most impacted to actually be in leadership positions um, as it relates to these changes. And that that's going to mean that some of these other folks are going to have to take a step back. Um, in order for us to have a future that we can be proud of moving forward. Yeah. Wow. Very well said. Also, just the idea of thinking that we may not need EJ organizations because people in positions of power making decisions are aware of environmental justice and they're centering policies around environmental justice is crazy. Like that would be, yeah, like it, that's, that's, that would be awesome. (laughs) Um, and then also that I, I really like the highlight of having courage because the, the system, you know, like you mentioned for years and centuries and centuries, like we got ourselves to this place um, and it is not the norm. It's going to take a lot of courage to kind of overcome the damage and overcome the patterns that are consistent in policymaking. Um, and so I think that that's a huge the guy I hope that people who are you know in our our engine and on can kind of take that charge of being courageous even if it's not at the the like you know elected official level um and so you you hinted at this in the beginning well it's a good uh you know kind of bookend to our conversation um you talked a little bit about where you grew up and kind of the impact that it had on your career and as a podcast that you know emphasizes the importance of understanding the impact that neighborhoods have on us as individuals. We always ask all of our guests, um, you know, to describe your neighborhoods. You talked about some of the impact that it had, but maybe describe what your neighborhood was like growing up. And if there's any other impacts that you kind of have noticed throughout your life that your neighborhood had on you, please feel free to elaborate on that. Yeah. Well, so we, I grew up in, um, you know, central part of Florida, um, the dynamic of the the political dynamic in the place where I grew up um, was that we had folks who were um, in elected positions that didn't necessarily always center um, the needs of Black folks within my city and, and, and at the county level as well. Um, there, you know, it's Florida as well. And so just the things that we are seeing now um, kind of play out in Florida around discriminatory policies and um, removing of, um, you know, uh, Black voices and history, um, that's always existed in Florida. It's just there's a lot more attention um, to that now. And so growing up in a place where um, the the school policies, the discipline policies, the um 
the phosphate plants uh, being, you know, around around me, um, there literally was a phosphate plant that I would say was within a couple, less than a couple miles of where we actually, where I actually lived and where I grew up. Um, and then going to schools where, um, like, for example, I was disciplined for um, and, and put in, in school suspension um, for saying that the civil rights uh, movement needed to be a part of American history. I think all of those things kind of play a role when we think about what is a healthy neighborhood. It is about the environment of um, having clean air, clean water, uh, all of those uh, issues, but it's also about the environment of what you have to deal with um, as like a black girl growing up in the central part of Florida and being told that you know who I am um, is less than uh, other folks who were growing up in the exact same neighborhood, growing up in the exact same city that my history did not matter as much, for example. Um, and as you all well know that racism being um, considered a public health, you know, issue in crisis, um, growing up in a place where racism was very prevalent um, in my community, where you had over-policing in Black communities, um, where, you know, the areas of the city that got rebuilt quickest were the places where there was the most money. Um, and those places typically did not have a high uh, proportion or concentration of Black people, uh, it really influenced how I look at the issues that I do now, whether it is, um, and then also <laughs> Florida experiences a number of uh, disasters as well. And I grew up, you know, through a number of really major hurricanes in, in Florida as well, and seeing which communities got the assistance first and which communities did not really impact it how I look at um, the policies that we have in place and the things that people are saying at a very high level, but knowing um, kind of what that looks like at a community level has helped me to stay grounded um, in the different conversations that I'm in, um, whether it's with community members, because I understand what that feels like uh, to not actually have all the information, but know that there is a problem, um, to recognize that your school environment, your educational environment absolutely impacts and is a, should be a part of the environmental and climate justice conversation. Uh, that policing also impacts and needs to be a part of the environmental and climate justice conversation. But also that folks at a federal level sometimes, you know, have been disconnected. And so um, that is kind of what drew me to want to be a part of those conversations at a federal policy level as well is, you know, there has to be people who are having those conversations who actually understand how to connect it back uh, to the community level as well. That's awesome, Aubrey. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it must be, um, it's amazing to see that you've, I mean, it's a, you, you, now are advocating for nationwide policies that are going to change the way that people, um, for instance, respond to disasters. So I think that's huge. And then also highlighting this idea that the neighborhood is not just about the built environment. It's not just about the block that you're on. It's about the people that are in that block and how the people in that block interact with each other and the policies that are um, 
you know, regulating what's going on in your neighborhood. So that full circle, being able to connect environmental justice, but also neighborhoods to um, how people can be healthier and experience better quality of life is is huge. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much for having me. I was really happy to have this conversation with both of you. Yeah. And to all of our listeners, uh, we also want to thank you for joining us for another episode of the Healthy Neighborhoods Healthy Nation podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would really appreciate it if you could give our podcast a five-star review and go follow us on our Instagram at hnhn underscore podcast. You can also check out our YouTube channel for the video recording of our conversations. Please join us next time to explore how healthy neighborhoods are the foundation to a healthy nation. 